Thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're brand new, uh, as Spence said earlier, uh, as we always say, we're really glad you guys are here uh, joining us for one of our gatherings. And maybe you're newish to our church still. Welcome back, uh, if, if that's the case. Uh, but again, my name's Chris, and we are um, finishing a sermon series right now this week. This is kind of end of summertime. Uh, so we are finishing our series in the, uh, the, the series of big questions we, we've been calling it, which we've done a couple of times so far in our history as a church, and we've, we've loved doing this. Uh, if you're brand new, these are questions that the church has given us as pastors to preach, and so we've been fielding them and doing our best to answer them and to make sermons out of them, so not just answering questions kind of on a topical theological level, though that's, that's a piece to preaching, teaching is a piece, is a piece to preaching, but also making actual sermons out of them. So we're, we're kind of taking the questions and making them ways by which we can talk about Jesus and his gospel. That's one of our big convictions here theologically, which is not a novel thing to the church by any stretch, but one of our big convictions is that all of theology, the undercurrent to all of theology systematically and otherwise, is the cross and the empty tomb. That everything leads to him. He is kind of the ultimate answer to all of our inquiries, all the mysteries of the faith and, and the secrets uh, that the Bible t- calls secrets anyway, that he is, the, he is the answer, he's the solution, he's the consolation. And even if the answer is sometimes, I don't know, or wait, or here's part of the answer God might give, or God might say, uh, if, you, if you fully knew the answer, you would almost just die. It would be so amazing and so beautiful, and you couldn't kind of bear the weight of it. Even if that's the answer, Christ himself is still sort of the consolation where he says, I'm enough, and, and I'm here for you, and I have died for your sins, and I have rose again. And all of theology, all of creation uh, itself is, uh, serves the purpose of, of him. And so hopefully that's been kind of one of the undertones or undercurrents of, of this series for you guys. But if you're brand new, that's kind of what we're trying to do with these is not just have a class, but to, but to preach through questions and to edify the church that way and to share the gospel with those of you who have, uh, are, are brand new to the faith or are not yet Christians. And so that'll be the case today as well. So today's the last one of these questions. Thanks again for providing questions to us. And if we didn't get to your questions, sorry about that. We'll uh, try, try to get back to you over email or coffee or something like that uh, in the next couple of months. One of the overseers will. Uh, but, uh, but thanks to those of you who, who have contributed. It's been really great. All right, so without uh, any further delay here, we're going to dive right into the question, which is a textual question about a passage in the New Testament, 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. And so the, the question we received, kind of just word for word here, I'll read this to start, is mainly within this passage, who are the spirits in prison? Relatedly, did Jesus go into hell between his death and resurrection? Also, can you provide further clarity on the relationship between Noah, the flood, and baptism? So super easy. Uh, basically, what in the world's going on in 1 Peter 3 is the question. Help. Um, that, that was my interpretation of, of the question, So, which, which is a great question. It's actually my wife's question. I asked her permission to say that. Uh, we, we've been talking a bit about this for the past couple of weeks uh, off and on, and so I wanted to, um, to, uh, to do this sermon because she's my wife. That's the only reason. No, not the only reason why we're doing this. Uh, I know that um, a lot of you have had this question because um, uh, I know a lot of you ladies did a First Peter study last summer. No, when was that? Was it the summer? Yeah, the earlier part of the summer, and so maybe... It was a question that came up uh, in that study as well. So uh, just uh, with the idea that maybe more of you had it. And if you hadn't before, if this is a new section of Scripture, hopefully it's, it's, uh, it's enlightening and, um, and uh, kind of gospel-focusing for you. So let me read the whole passage because a lot of you have never read it before maybe or it's just been a long time. So let me read this in full to begin and then a few asides and we'll dive right in. So verse 18. 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits now in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is now at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All right, so this is the, this is the passage kind of in context here. and There's more context I'll mention, but the question more had to do with verses 19 and 20 about Jesus going to proclaim, or it's the same word for preach, uh, to preach or proclaim to the spirits now in prison. And then this whole thing's connected with the days of Noah. So uh, Noah uh, being the, the individual in Genesis 6 to 9, the first book of the Bible, uh, who he and his family were saved through water. They were saved on the ark from this worldwide flood that God brought in judgment uh, over sin, uh, for sin. So I'll come back to some of that. Uh, but in context, we have, uh, we have a couple other things to talk about here today as well. Some initial asides, though, that this is a um, difficult passage of Scripture to interpret. That's the understatement of the day right there. So let's just get out of the way. This is a difficult passage of Scripture to interpret. Uh, we're in good company. If you think that, Luther in the 16th century said, a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty what Peter means. And then my favorite, Augustine in the 4th century, this is felt by me to be difficult. <laughs> Which, I read that and I said, I feel you, Augustine. The, uh, the rabbit hole goes very deep here, deeper than I thought. I've read this passage a hundred times in my life, maybe more, and spending more time in it this week, I thought, uh, it was one of those passages where I thought, you know, I'm going to take a crack at this. And then Thursday comes along and I think, what did I do? What did, it's too late. Becky's printed the worship folders, I can't go back, but... Um, so this does not mean that we can't know what it means, but it does mean that we have to hold it a little loosely. That's just an important understanding. Like when we talk about theology and reading our Bible sometimes, uh, that's, that's an important principle. Um, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't kind of take cracks at things and we shouldn't pray because the Spirit does enlighten us. The Spirit of God does enable us to understand what the Bible means and even very difficult things with Christ can be made fully more, can be made known or, or fully revealed. And so... Uh, so this passage, uh, verses 19 and 20 especially, is, is what um, I've called in the past, and I've, I've talked about this hermeneutically or interpretationally before, but also I think in our Genesis series it came up. Um, but it's what I, what I call, especially verses 19 and 20, it's what I call a moon passage versus a sun passage of Scripture. So what I mean by that is, like God in the beginning in Genesis 1, you see this, he made two lights, a greater light and a lesser light. So the greater light is the sun, the lesser light is the moon. So the words greater and lesser are used before sin comes into the world. So hierarchy is not a bad thing. Hierarchy exists right away in the very beginning. The moon is not as great as the sun. They're both good, uh, but the sun is a greater light. And so hermeneutically then, uh, he makes some passages of the Bible greater than the others. Uh, in, in this passage, there are sun elements and there are moon elements. The sun of the explicit gospel is mentioned alongside the moon of some cryptic teaching about Jesus preaching to spirits in prison at some point 
in some way and for some reason. And so partly what I want to do today is let the sun of the passage reflect its light off of the moon part of the passage like the sun reflects its light off the moon. And so I want to, what I want to do is let the sun of the passage, the greater part of the passage, shine off of the more cryptic part to help us arrive at the answer to these questions today. So if that doesn't make sense, just stick with me because I'll, I'll try to use those words throughout to give an example of what I'm doing here. It's an important principle, especially for a passage like this, but just whenever you're reading the Bible. Um, one caveat to that or kind of qualification is we don't get to determine what the moon parts are. We don't get to determine what the lesser parts are. We have to let the Bible do that for us. So when, when like the author of Hebrews, for example, says that there are greater and lesser covenants in the Bible or greater and lesser figures or greater and lesser stories and Jesus is the greater in comparison to all these things. He is the better version of all these things. That, that speaks into our interpretive methodology. And so we allow the Bible to say this is better and this is lesser. So anyway, with that said, let's move into the first part here. Verse 18, we'll spend a few minutes here. Verse 18 is the sun part. So let me read it again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. All right, so in context here, and I'm not going to go back and read this, but if you want to, even now or, or later today, look at what Peter says right before this passage. So um, ending in verse 17, uh, but also the, that kind of uh, prior paragraph helps a little bit here. But in context, Peter has been talking a lot about suffering. Uh, Spence preached a sermon on this last week, did a great job just kind of topically approaching this. Uh, if you weren't here for that, but, um, and this is a piece to this. Peter talks a ton about Christians in their suffering, saying things like it's normal for Christians to suffer and that we shouldn't fear it and we shouldn't fear suffering, especially for Christ's sake. So we can suffer for doing evil. That's not okay to suffer in that capacity. Peter says, I'm not talking about that. There's a type of suffering, though, that suffers for like doing bad things or something like that. But he's saying suffering for Christ's sake, though, is a good thing. And it's actually quite normal, and so we shouldn't fear it. And then, through that, that we should stay the course and not lose hope. Some of you guys may know people, Christians, who have suffered, and they leave the faith because of it. Or like Jesus says, like with the, the soil types parable, if you know that parable, in the Gospels, there are four types of soil, and, and Christ sows the seed of the word. And there are some types that there, there's this vine, that there's like worries and cares of the world that kind of grew up and choke out the plant. That just happens, sadly, but Jesus himself says this, that some people will look like they're coming to Christ, look like they become Christians, and then suffering will come in and sort of choke out the life of the vine of like spiritual growth, and they'll, and they'll die. And if you haven't seen that in someone's life, you will. If you're at all involved in a church setting, this is the sad part, we just see this. We don't see people finish their race sometimes. So it's a warning for Christians to not be like them, but it's also just kind of this sobering reality that suffering, when Christians suffer, it will be a deal breaker for some, of, for some Christians, so-called Christians, and they'll just kind of cease being a believer um, by their own volition and will, but, but they'll cease being a, a believer because they're suffering and then they feel like they don't deserve it. All right, so, but, that, but then we jump to verse 18. So kind of to get into past context here, verse 18, in the context of all that says, for Christ also suffered. And so this is not just a theological description of Christ's crucifixion because of the word also here. So what Peter's doing is he's offering this as consolation for Christians who suffer. And clearly here it's what God, at least in part, wants us to think about when we suffer. 
the fact that God is not oblivious to it. That Jesus, God's son, also suffered. And, and, and through that, he's the great empathizer. So like a, a parent kneels down to a crying child and might say, I've been there, I've gone through that exact same thing, and I promise you it gets better. Like, like a parent, a lot of you parents have already done that, or, or you will if you're not a parent yet. Or, you, or you're the child, and you've been on the, on the other side of that. When parents do that, I mean, like that, God can say stuff like that to us, and it's not trivial. Because he has been through it. He's been through worse. He has suffered more than me, more than you, more than all of us combined. And so he can empathize and come our way and sort of share even in our suffering and weep with us, but then destroy our suffering as well, whether in this life or the life to come, because he rose again. And so I think one of the things here, and this again pulls off some of the things Spencer said last week, but you guys know how when you suffer, you tend to want to be around people who have gone through what you've gone through? You know, when you suffer a lot, you tend to like gravitate towards people who have been through that, like maybe it's a miscarriage or something, and you want consolation from that person. You might ask for advice, or how did you get through this, or something like that. Well, if that's the case, then you should want to be around God as well, because he has been through everything you've been through. And so I'm saying this to those of you who maybe are, are, are distant from him, or you don't believe in the God of the Bible yet. He's actually a very, very good God that you should want to get to know because he is an empathizer with you. Everything you've suffered, everything you are suffering, he's taken on in greater, in greater ways. And so he's not distant. He's not um, just way out there a million miles away and can't empathize. He came our way and associated with us. And so if we want to be, if we want to like empathize and kind of just be around people who've suffered like us, how much more should we want to be around a God who says these kinds of things and experiences these kinds of things in, in the Bible? That's kind of an aside. That's, that's a pretty big deal, though, about God's character in this passage and in theology. All right, so, and then, so past that, though, the rest of this verse, the rest of this verse gives us what many call one of the greatest single verses on the essence of the gospel that we have in the New Testament. So not a small thing, which has me, happens to be right in context with one of the most difficult passages to understand in the entire Bible. Coincidence? I don't think it is. I mean, I think God is crystal clear on the essence of the gospel right alongside, you know, this is felt by me to be difficult <laughs> type passages. Like, I have no idea what, uh, what Peter means here. It's, it's the sun shining off of the moon. We'll come back to that. So the rest of this verse then is, is the essence of the gospel. Christ, and I'll read through it here, just kind of comment a little bit. Christ suffered once for sin, referring to his crucifixion. The righteous for the unrighteous. And so pause right there. What was he doing when he suffered? Well, this is saying it was the righteous for the unrighteous. So it was classic substitutionary atonement or substitutionary saving. He was giving himself, the righteous one, as a perfect, perfect sacrifice for the unrighteous, for sinners, for wayward individuals, for God-rejectors like us. And why did he do this? Back to the passage, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, being made alive in the spirit. All right, so this is the gospel. This is what the whole Bible is about. It's the mission of God coming to fruition. God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to die in this way, for us, that all who believe in him might have eternal life. 
That, this, is, this, is, this is the gospel. This is the mission of God. This is the essence of all biblical theology. And it's good news because, what, and this kind of this hints at it, made more clear maybe elsewhere, but what this says is, when it says God did this for us, it implies he wanted to do it, right? He loved us in this. And it says that through his death and resurrection, I love this language, you don't see it everywhere, but you, but you kind of do it at the same time, but you see it here. He brings us to God. So when, when Christ died, what this is saying is his death and resurrection were the means by which we as the unrighteous are brought to God. So it's actually an active verb for Jesus that he might bring but if we rewrote this kind of from our perspective, we would use the passive verb, that, that we might be brought to God. We're in the passive. Jesus actively brings sinners to God, not by way of his teaching or by his holy life primarily, but primarily through his death and resurrection. So what that means then is it's not our works or keeping the laws of the Bible that bring us to God. We are brought. We don't come we're brought to him. And, and so, and this is written to Christians, remember, so I'm speaking to all of you, Christian or not, but this is encouragement for Christians like in real time. This, so, so in other words, this is true for you, Christian, right now in this very room. The only thing that brings you to God and God to you is Jesus. Remember that. Do you believe it? Have you forgotten? The only thing that brings you to God and God to you is Jesus. Nothing has changed, Christian. You are that loved, you're that fought for, you are that brought to God. Your entire existence as a Christian human being is based on the fact that Jesus has brought you to God, entirely by grace alone, though you and I did not deserve it. That is the blazing, red-hot sun of this passage. All right? So then it gets weird after this. So let's keep reading, but have this in mind as we read the rest of the passage. It should help. I was going to say it will help. It might not. It should, though. I think it'll help us get at greater clarity than it otherwise, otherwise would. So, all right, verses 19 and 20, let me read this again. It says, mid-sentence, in which, so Christ was raised in the Spirit. So referring to the Spirit, in which, in the Spirit, he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. So I'm going to try to keep this as simple as possible. Uh, translate, one, one thing off the cuff here is translation matters. I'm using the ESV here today. The NASB or NRSV are also literal translations that kind of just get right at what the Greek is saying here in the New Testament. Others like the NIV kind of attempt to interpret for us in this passage, um, and so, which is fine. Uh, it's not like it's contradictory or wrong to do that. Uh, it's, it's never linguistically kind of one for one all the time, and so we, we just have to do that. Uh, with that said, though, I'm taking the ESV, and so if you have NIV open, you'll see this, is, this reads quite different, um, and it matters because the interpretive interpretations out there um, take a different slant on this that I'm going to, and so, which, again, I'll, I'll just say that I'm gonna hold this really loosely today, I don't know if I've ever been like as uncertain about anything <laughs> standing up here uh, as I have here. So I'm holding this next section really loosely. I'm going to argue for one perspective, um, but the other perspective could very well be true. And so if, you, if you're like nailed down personally on that view, 
um, you know what, maybe next year I'll actually agree with you. I don't know. You know, but, but I think that it's wrong and I'm getting way ahead of myself, so let me kind of rein it in. A couple other things here, though. Historically, um, as some of you might know, people said a lot of crazy stuff about this passage, um, heretical things, <laughs> actually. Uh, but really, only two perspectives are what we call orthodox or, or straight, or in other words, uh, consistent with what the rest of the Bible has to say about similar matters, or just, again, flat-out non-heretical. And so the particular questions we have to answer here are, who are the spirits in prison? When and how and maybe why did Jesus need to proclaim and preach to them? And then how is this connected to the days of Noah? It's kind of like the big wrench in the gears uh, in a lot of ways is why is Noah name dropped here at all? And so, um, but again, Noah referring to Genesis 6 to 9 when Noah and his family and all the animals were saved in the ark uh, by God, saved by God in the ark from the flood that he was bringing on the earth. All right, so those are the, those are the questions. Uh, the first, so I'm going to just uh, offer two views here today. The first one, which I, I don't think is true, but it could be, but I'll just explain it quick. Uh, the first view is the spirits in prison are fallen angels or demons who disobeyed God in Noah's day, and Jesus somehow either through his resurrection figuratively or actually going to do this maybe in between his death and resurrection. He went and preached victory over these fallen creatures who at that time were in prison, awaiting judgment and consignment to hell. So this is the view that uh, some Christians take and look to to justify the idea that Jesus went to hell on that Saturday in between his death and resurrection, so in between the first Good Friday and first Easter, uh, that Christ actually had some kind of um, ministry in hell. He did something there. Some of the early creeds uh, seem to say as much, and this is one of the verses that is looked to to justify that. But just consider this the... Jesus went to proclaim victory over some really bad angels' view. So just if that helps. Jesus went to proclaim victory over some really bad angels' view, somehow in connection with his um, death and resurrection and ascension. All right, so support for this view. It fits with how the books of 2 Peter and Jude talk about fallen angels being in chains or gloomy prisons now because of Christ. And also, secondarily, spirits usually means angels in the New Testament. Rarely does it mean human spirits, though it definitely can. Uh, it also fits with some of the early creeds, like the Apostles' Creed uh, talks about this, but um, which talk about Jesus descending to hell before his resurrection. So there's different like versions of this view. Not everyone who upholds this view would, would um, argue that or feel like they have to argue that, but, but some do. And so uh, if that's been part of your past or your present, uh, there you go. So, these are strong arguments, to be clear. And it's, po it's possible this is what Peter means here. Jesus, in his death, the Bible says elsewhere, destroyed the works of the devil. And this passage could be an expression of that destroying. All right? The problem with this view is when you keep reading. <laughs> so, uh, the first part seems to really cater to this. The problem, though, at least in my and many other people's estimation, is when you keep reading and realize that and Noah's name dropped here out of seemingly nowhere. Like, why is Noah mentioned? And so, in order to uphold this first view, we have to deal with, like, the specificity of declaring victory over demons. In other, in other words, why would Jesus declare victory over specifically the fallen angels of Noah's day who disobeyed? Something we hear nothing about in the Genesis account of this story anyway, but why just these angels? 
why wouldn't he declare victory generally to all of his enemies? It's actually quite problematic interpretationally, and there are no good answers out there. All right, so that's, that's the first view. Second view is that the spirits in prison are human souls who were disobedient in Noah's day that Christ himself preached to through Noah, but who disobeyed nonetheless and who are now in prison awaiting consignment to hell. Or another way to word that is, in the spirit, Christ preached through Noah to the disobedient of pre-flood earth, those same people who are now, present day, in Hades or this kind of temporary holding place before consignment to hell, this, this prison idea that the Bible talks about. So this view then, is that much more clear? No, I'm just kidding. It's not at all. Uh, if, you, if you think, well, is that supposed to be clear? No, it's not. It's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be just incredibly difficult. But anyway, um, this view, though, is focused more on the past. So Christ, in the Spirit, this is saying, was present in Noah thousands of years before his incarnation and death and resurrection. And so Peter's point here is not so much to describe what happened between his death and resurrection as it is to make a secondary point or example about a minority Noah's family, who suffered, but who were saved in the end. And so more on that here in, in just a minute. But a little support for it first. Peter himself uh, talks about how the Spirit of Christ in, in 1 Peter 1, I don't have a, oh, I do have, I do have the reference, 1 Peter 1.11, um, how the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets. Noah's included in that list. So in the prophets of the Old Testament. And how Noah was also a herald and a preacher of righteousness from 2 Peter 2.5. It fits much better also secondarily with the immediate context which has been about Peter encouraging first century Christians who are suffering like Noah and his family presumably did and the ridicule they faced for building an ark when it had not yet rained on the earth. And it also deals with the strangeness of the other view which has to believe Jesus proclaimed victory over specifically victory over uh, certain angels, or if you take the view, maybe human spirits too, but uh, certain angels and not to all of them. And it also deals with the weirdness of Jesus being in hell at all, uh, as some argue, which is problematic. And when you think about what he said to the thief on the cross, when he was dying, today, thief, you will be with me in paradise. And on top of that, when Jesus says, it's finished, it is dying breath, the idea of needing to, to sort of atone for more or, or do more in relation to atonement or even to suffer is problematic. It's more likely that Jesus put hell on himself on the cross for those six hours and that he ascended to heaven in the spirit as soon as he died. All right, so I just want to cover that kind of question a little bit. I know it's not kind of um, holistic here, but uh, cover that one question about did Jesus go to hell? Probably not. So, all right, moving on. In the context. So, so what this means then in context is, in 1 Peter 3, it's saying, uh, so to go back to kind of verse 17, basically, which is, which is right before the paragraph for today, but in, in the greater context of 1 Peter, Peter's been saying, Christians, you guys are suffering. Christ also suffered for you, but Christ also suffered. But then tertiarily, also did Noah and his family. But Christ was raised, Noah's family was saved, and a great victory was won over evil in both stories by Christ because in both stories, uh, either Christ was explicitly working or he was working sort of in Noah, uh, spiritually speaking. And so 
this really weird kind of cryptic way of trying to encourage Christians that God always overcomes suffering. God is always bringing people through on dry land. God is always making a way out of storms. He's always saving people through their faith, not their good works, but by, their faith, by grace through their faith. He's always doing that, pattern-wise in the Old Testament and actually in the New Testament through Christ. And so relatedly, what, what I think here is, this is why I, I take this second view. Another reason, in addition to what I said before, is I think this view does a better job at being consistent with how the Bible elsewhere makes connections between Noah, Christ, and the church. And so the, the question today had to do partially with that. Why is Noah and baptism linked? Christian baptism, when we talk about this morning, we're going to have one of these on September 30th, so when we lower Christians in water and bring them out, why, how, does bat, how does that correspond to Noah? How does that correspond to the story of a worldwide flood in the Old Testament? How is there correspondence between the two? And where's Christ in all of that? And I think this latter of you does a better job at linking all of them together in the way the Bible does elsewhere. So, in other words, the first view about the really bad angels view, the first view seems to make Noah here a little more of a strange aside, whereas this latter view makes his mention critical to our understanding of Peter's meaning. So as Jesus himself says somewhere in the Gospels, he says, but as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So Jesus himself says, my days, the Son of Man's days, are like Noah's days. What happened in the days of Noah are going to happen again in connection with me. And so Jesus himself makes that connection. And so what I want to do then is, is move on from this, this moon part here a bit and, and talk more about, as Peter does, talk more about this idea even more to connect some more dots. All right? Especially with this latter view in mind. So verses 19 and 20, skip that slide, 20 and 21, let's read this again. So back to the sun, slowly. So the sun, the moon, and now coming back to the sun, uh, at least uh, partially here. So verse 21 and 22 again, Peter says in context, baptism, water baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All right, so to unpack this one then, I want to, the, the, kind of the key phrase to this, at least for today, I want, I want you just to think about or circle if you want in your Bibles or highlight, but is that first phrase, baptism corresponds to this. And I think that this is primarily talking about Noah and the story of the flood, but I think it also points back earlier to Jesus' death and resurrection, which the Bible says is his ultimate baptism. So baptism corresponds to these two things. I'll talk through them kind of quickly here. But the first, more obviously, is baptism corresponds to Noah's experience. And so if you had to boil it down, it would kind of look like this. Noah and his family being saved through water points ahead to and images symbolically Christian water baptism. That's what, so the story in the Old Testament is a baptism, according to Peter, is a baptism-like event. People were saved through water, and that's true for the Christian's life now, right? This is the way the Bible talks, is when we believe the gospel, we're baptized, we pass through water in association with 
our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. So really, all throughout history, God just has this strange pattern of saving people through water. Or think of like Israel passing through the Red Sea when it was parted. That's another baptism-like event that Paul links to in 1 Corinthians 10. They were baptized in the sea, he says, which Moses never talks about in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, looking back, we do. It was a baptism-like, passing through water, saved through water-like event. And this is the big one. Linking back to, back to, so going back to Noah here, this is one of the big ones the Bible makes. Salvation and passing through water are linked. And so to say that a little bit longer, just for clarity, Baptism corresponds to Noah's family being saved from God's wrath, from the flood, on the ark that God essentially built for them by giving them precise instructions on what it should look like. And so there's a correspondence between Noah's family being saved and the Christian being saved from the true flood of God's wrath, through water again and all by grace. Which I think is a cool thing here, which is kind of an aside, but... um, for clarity, though, first, in Noah's story, in the Noah story, this would make the ark like who? If we're, if we're making a correspondence here, who is the ark like? Jesus, right? It's like he, he's the one we basically get on, essentially, to withstand the flood. And the ark, it's, it's actually really important in Genesis to, to see that God gives Moses these, or Noah, these precise instructions on how to build the ark. And so God is saying, be sure you make it precisely this way. So Noah had no idea what to build. It hadn't even rained on the earth yet. So the idea of there being a flood was just like, there's no way it's ever going to happen. Um, and, and just a complete mystery. But he did it anyway. And so the idea that, that God kind of allows for the building of the ark and makes the ark corresponds to the idea that now in the Christian life, God gives us the description of his son, right? He says, this is the precise way you're going to be saved. This is the precise way you're going to sort of get on the ark and be saved from my coming wrath. But as you kind of widen out then a little bit, or actually go deeper maybe is the better way to say it, in the Noah story, if the ark is like Christ, it actually fits pretty linguistically in a cool way, I think, with, um, this is in the past, in the latter section, but in 1 Peter 3.20, it makes this interesting phrase, while the ark, didn't have to say this to make his point, but he says, while the ark was being prepared, just like Jesus' body was being prepared for burial when Mary put perfume on his feet. Same word. And so, again, this, this, la- this latter view then I was talking about in verses 19 and 20 takes more seriously the idea that Christ, just big picture, had a plan for suffering, had a plan for judgment, had a plan for death, had a plan for water, had a plan for resurrection in Noah's day even, but in his own day as well and in the Christian life. All right, so baptism corresponds to that. It also corresponds to Jesus' experience, uh, meaning his death and resurrection. So a little bit less on this. I kind of mentioned this already, but baptism also corresponds, water baptism does, to Christ's death and resurrection. He was baptized for us when he plunged into hell on the cross and then rose up again, was buried, then rose up again in a baptism-like manner out of the water or tomb three days later. And so as I say here, uh, this is a little thing on baptism if you're new to this, but this is our, as a, a Baptistic church, like this is what we believe. A Christian's water baptism says a couple things then. 
from the Christian's perspective. One, I believe in Jesus' baptism. And I put quotes here because meaning his death and resurrection. This is ultimately when he was baptized. When he plunged into hell, when he rose up again, uh, buried, rose up again three days later, this was what his baptism, water baptism, pointed to. All right, so that's the first piece. When a Christian's baptized, they point to it. They say, this is the essence of my life. I'm going all in on this. This is what it means for me to be a Christian. Jesus died and was raised. That's it. And I'm brought to God through that. That's it. And my baptism is yet another thing that kind of gives me and my testimony over to that very act so I can look back on it and remember it when I doubt or when I suffer or when I sin. All right, the second thing is I associate with Jesus' baptism, which is different. It means dying to my old self and rising anew by faith. And so what a Christian says when he or she is baptized is, I I believe when Jesus died and rose that I spiritually did with him. And now by faith, I'm one with him mysteriously. The Bible says we're unified with Christ in that capacity. and, And we die with him. We're buried with him. Our old self is dead. And we rise anew with him by faith. Which, just as an aside here, is huge not just in terms of how it underlines the, the idea of grace, that Jesus saves us, we don't save ourselves, but practically, if you believe that you've already died and you sin and you're worried about consequence, you're sort of like, one of the ways we kind of come back at that lie or that temptation that maybe we just screwed up one too many times for God to actually still love us is, but I actually already died. So how can I die again? Right? Like, if you sin or doubt, and you worry about the punishment for sin, you worry, you have fear over hell, what the gospel says and baptism symbolizes is, but you already died. This is how the book of Romans talks. So some of you guys know his argument there, which I won't go into, but you've already died, so sin has no more, like, control over you. No matter how much it might be at work in your life, if you believe in Jesus, the punishment for it, Jesus has already taken from you. He's experienced death for you, and you with him. So there's nothing more that can happen to you, in other words. Nothing more. It's like complete grace and complete freedom. And so the theology behind the symbol of baptism, and even baptism itself, is not just an act for a Christian. It's actually part of how we get through life, is remembering it and experiencing it. And there's so many layers to it. I hope you're kind of seeing that today. There's so many things to say about baptism, but this is one of them practically is is when you doubt, when you sin, when you wander, when you worry, when you fear, and when death is the ultimate end for all those who reject God, you know, for us, we think about Jesus and his baptism. And then secondarily, we think about ourselves as new creations. The old self has already died, so there's no more that can be done to it or no more that can be done to us. All right, so a couple more things on that as we talk about... um, so, so all this is important because of how it underscores grace. I mentioned that. But, but exactly how a sinner is saved. I mean, even consider this phrase. This didn't come up in today's question, but maybe you've wondered this, this weird phrase, baptism now saves you. Like, it was already confusing enough. Like, thanks, Peter. You know, baptism saves you. Isn't that, like, against everything the Bible says elsewhere, you know? Um, and it actually isn't. But consider that phrase for a second. Baptism now saves you. He qualifies it by saying, not the act or the removal of dirt from the body, but notice still how 
passive and simple and grace-centered this idea is. This is what I want to encourage you guys with. Don't bristle at that phrase so much as welcome how freeing it is to, to, to the Christian. In other words, baptism saves you, not your works, not what you do, not your inherent sense of goodness, not you coming to God and bringing yourself to him, but baptism and what it symbolizes saves you. Water saves you, not the law. Jesus' death and resurrection saves you, his baptism, not your moral effort. And so to be baptized is to say, this, what this baptism, what this points to, saves me, not myself. Jesus saves me, who has gone into heaven because I never could by my works. This is why Christ's ascension is so important. Did Christ ascend and go into heaven, or did you? Clearly Christ, right? The fact that he ascended to God as a human being who was also God's son means that he brings us to God. He goes to God himself first to advocate for us. Only he can ascend. Only he's perfect. See, when, when he ascends, it just it makes it so much more critical as sinners like us to cling to him, to hold on to him, to stay on the ark, and to believe and trust that only he can save me and I never could. And, and baptism is yet another thing that we see in the Bible theologically, but then kind of by action as well that underlines the idea that water saves, death and resurrection saves, grace saves. This idea of being passively baptized. I mean, no one baptizes themselves, right? I mean, is there, is there a time that happens? I'm just thinking about this now. I don't think so. That'd be kind of weird. Uh, someone should, and, and always does, baptize the other person. So in that moment, um, like I, I baptize a lot of you people, and Spence has. And, and so like in that moment, we are a Christ figure to you. So when we lower you in, just a few weeks ago we did this for eight people, and when we lower you in and bring you out, it's a picture of God doing that for you. You can't baptize yourself because you can't save yourself. So the, the sacrament itself, the passivity of the sinner, and the, the activity of the baptizer who represents God is critical. No one baptizes themselves because no one saves themselves. And so add that on to the, the layer there. Okay, so basically what we've done today is we've, we've talked about how to approach tricky passages like this, the sun, the moon, and slowly coming back to the sun, uh, layers to, to this, uh, this idea in this verse, verses. A couple things to wrap up. Jesus is not boring. Uh, if you are tempted, or maybe you think this, and, that, and that's okay, um, I don't know what all of your pasts are you know, here today, but... Um, if you're tempted to think or if you do think about Jesus as just a man who lived and taught us how to be nice to each other, think about this passage. Go here. There's many places you can go, but maybe go here and think about how it says he died for you and he resurrected his own body from death three days later. And then think about how his spirit was alive in Noah Thousands of years beforehand, before he was incarnated into human flesh, this same Jesus who laughed with children, who cleansed lepers, who dined graciously with prostitutes, who walked among us and loved us, 
was the same one whose spirit guided Noah somehow, mysteriously. Or if you take the other view, who preached to angels and, 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 and demons and proclaimed victory over them in between his death and resurrection, but whose spirit guided Noah, who was there somehow in the building of the ark, and who calmed the seas with the word, and who saves all those who call upon him. See, what, what this is saying is Jesus is not boring. He is the God of the universe. He's not a moral teacher. Moral teachers don't spiritually appear in prophets 3,000 years before they come into earth. And they don't talk about themselves dying and rising for people. They can't bring themselves back from the dead. See, he's not just a guy. This is, this is the, the God of the universe who made everything, who came into the earth, God's son, Jesus, who became like us to die for us in love, in order, as verse 18 says, to bring us to God. And so, the second piece is, do not miss the sun for the moon in this passage. It's really easy to do. What you should first think about when you think about this passage is verse 18. What you should end with thinking about when you think about this passage is verse 18. Because it's the greater part of the, ver- of the passage. It is better. It's more blazing red hot. It's more important for you and me. It matters more to have an answer for it. And it's clearer. So the idea of what matters more and what's clear line up in the Bible. Isn't that great news? The clearest parts matter the most. Like what if it was the other way around? You know, like I beat my head against the wall, not literally, but almost, this week over this passage. And to think about, well, what if that's the way we had to approach the gospel? You know, but anyway. Don't miss the sun then for the moon. Or don't miss the forest for the trees, if you prefer that metaphor, but I'll stick with this one. Don't miss the sun for the moon in this passage. And so two things here. In other words, believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me explain this for a second. This is how this passage preaches to us. Everything about it, whether the context, the reality of Christian suffering, the person of Noah, the act of baptism, Jesus' ascension over angelic powers, all of that has to do with the gospel. Jesus died for you to bring you to God. I mean, do you believe that's true? This is where it confronts us in a good, gracious way, but still confronting because we can say we don't believe that or we just choose not to think about it that much. But if this happened, it has bearing on our life. So do we believe this is who Jesus is as the Bible presents him to be? Is it the essence of our faith or Christian, speaking to Christians for a second, have you moved on to something else? Saw someone uh, tweet or say, I forget where I see these things, but say this last week, the gospel, Jesus' death and resurrection, is not a means to an end. Theologically and otherwise, Jesus' death and resurrection is not a means to an end, but the end in itself. Jesus' body was prepared like the ark was prepared before him. Both of them prepared for burial into the sea of God's wrath and judgment so we might take refuge in him by grace through faith. So believe in that. And the Bible, I mean, here gives you many sort of on-ramps or access points to that or symbols, beautiful pictures of grace. Pick one and say, God, help me to believe this and to live as though this is true today and forgive me for not. Just a great prayer to 
to pray today and as you leave. And then second, because this is not really, we could have drilled into this a lot more. I didn't preach on the, the book here, the, the first Peter's kind of main perspective here as much as trying to answer the question, but this is still very important to say because this is what I think the mention of Noah is getting at, is be encouraged in your suffering, Christian. Like Christ suffered, like Noah faced ridicule, like Christ spent three nights in the tomb, like Noah spent 40 days in the storm, dry land is coming. Resurrection life is coming. Christ the righteous judge is coming, and he will right all wrongs and ease all sufferings, and you will be brought safely through adversity, through judgment, through flood to him. It's a guarantee. No one on the ark didn't make it back in Genesis 6 and 9, right? Did any of Noah's family jump off, or did they not make it somehow? Was there like one big wave that came on that 39th day? You know, make for a funny cartoon maybe, but it's, like, it's, it's a terrible reality, right? Terrible. And it didn't happen to, to tell you and me that anyone who's on Christ figuratively will make it through. We will. Anyone who clings to the ark of Christ will be shut in. God will shut us in, it says back in um, the, the original narrative in, in Genesis. God shut in Noah and his family. He shut them in. He sealed them in. That's what he does through his blood, through Christ's blood. He seals us and shuts us in. He promised it. Baptism reveals it, these truths. And so the call for us is to hold on to him, to board the ark, and to wait and pray through suffering, but knowing there is a clear end. The storm will abate. Uh, his, his resurrection tells us as much as, as these other things do as well. So, so cling, believe, pray, wait, hold on. Don't neglect him. This is normal for us. And this, this passage, in a very moonlight, cryptic way, encourages the church in these, in these ways. So, so hear that as well. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this passage. It's difficult. Uh, there's a lot here that we just don't know, but there's a lot we can know. Thank you for dying for our sins to bring us to you by faith. This is our, our trust in that, but really your grace in giving us the gift of that faith and coming our way and descending and taking on human flesh and taking on our sorrows, taking on our sins, taking on our shame, taking on our sicknesses, taking on our death, absorbing all of that, wearing that like a, a yoke around your neck when you died on the cross, essentially going to hell on that cross for six hours for us, all of that. The righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous God, the righteous Son of God died for the unrighteous. Thank you that that's true. And um, encourage your church today in that and those here who have yet to believe Encourage them in that loving act of the creator of the universe as well. In Christ's name we pray, amen.